This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Welcome to another episode of Clean Tech Talk. Uh, I'm your host, Michael Bernard. Uh, Zach Shahan is not listening in the background on this episode, um, but I'm sure you'll have heard his dulcet tones uh, at the introduction regardless. Today, our guest is Ashish Dash, goes by Dash. He's Senior Vice President and Global Head of Energy and Utilities for Infosys. Welcome, Dash. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you know, you're a, a publicist reached out to me. Obviously, uh, Infosys has got some stuff going on. And, you know, on that note, um, I, I personally know Infosys really well. I've, uh, com- you know, in a, my previous role um, leading major technical and outsourcing projects for a global technology firm, um, you know, I competed with Infosys uh, around the world. And uh, you were always one of our <laughs> competitors. Um, not as bad as Accenture. Um, <laughs> I competed with Accenture more, but Infosys was, you know, frequently at the table and always, you know, did did very well. It was also interesting during that period, you guys moving from, you know, up the value chain to more and more business acumen, which is where you are today. But, you know, so for people who don't know, um, you know, I'll give the very brief version of Infosys, which is that it's a, a major Indian service provider um, of technical services globally. Ashish uh, or Dash, uh, anything else you'd like to just say in, in terms of Infosys and its provenance? Sure, sure, Mike. So thanks for that introduction. Um, Infosys, as you said, we do a lot of systems integration work, but because of the uh, digital transformation that's happening across different industries, we have positioned ourselves as one of the most successful digital transformation partner for our clients which essentially means bringing digital technologies to help clients navigate their next and become the digital companies of the future. Um, which is you know, really interesting because it, it is a challenging space. I certainly spent a lot of time in, in that space. But you know, for Clean Technica, just to let you know a bit, bit about Clean Technica, about 50% of the audience is in the United States, and the other 50% is spread around the world. Um, so we do have a right. global audience for this. The, um, um, and in that note, you know, speaking of the global, I, I was kind of preparing for this and thinking, hmm, I wonder what Infosys's position on climate change is. And I hadn't realized how well regarded Infosys was in climate change circles, um, both the CDPA list and the COP conference. Can, can you talk a bit about 
you know, Infosys's positioning against climate change and why you're getting these international recognitions? Sure. Uh, we at Infosys are committed to ensuring that um, as a corporate citizen, as a, as a company that operates in multiple countries, we meet uh, the, the climate change standards that are required for the planet. So I'm glad to inform you that in 2019, we won the United Nations Global Climate Action Award under a category called Climate Neutral Now. And, and that's something that we are very proud of. Uh, we recently joined uh, Amazon's uh, uh, Climate Pledge, which is an Amazon-backed climate pledge, which essentially is a commitment from our side to become net zero carbon uh, corporation 10 years before the uh, the timeline of 2050. Right? So we will be carbon net zero carbon by 2040. And that's something that we are we are very proud of. So look at the, how we have gone about doing it. Um, we have large campuses where we house uh, our employees for uh, the work that we do globally. And each of our campus is unique in, 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 in design. And we have made sure that our per capita electricity consumption, the initiatives on energy efficiency are yielding results. So to give you some data, uh, the per capita electricity consumption per employee for Infosys has dropped by 55% since 2008. We've also uh, established some very effective renewable generation plants. So recently we created a, we set up a 40 megawatt plant near Bangalore uh, as a supply, renewable supply source um, uh, to the grid. And overall we have about close to 50 megawatt uh, generation sources for, for the company. And then we continue to monitor um, every single opportunity we get towards uh, reduction of our carbon footprint, uh, reduction of usage of paper, uh, how do we get onto more of a, a collaboration tools so that the travel is, is lesser and lesser for our employees. So there's an overall program that, that we have launched as a, as a, as a company uh, to ensure that we meet the climate change uh, requirements required and we stay ahead of our competition in, in, in almost all of those parameters. Uh, and it's really interesting to me that you actually have 50 megawatts of renewable generation. I mean, certainly that's something that the big cloud providers have. But, you know, speaking for the other service providers that are in the space, um, I, I hadn't, well, Tata, I know, has some stuff. So, but that's in the larger conglomerate of TCS, but they have or a larger conglomerate above TCS. But, you know, um, IBM, Accenture, and the, the other services providers um, just don't have a lot of generations. What, what prompted you to, to actually build your own generation? Um, the two things, uh, Mike. One, obviously, we do a lot of work in the area of uh, renewables and generation um, with our clients. And, and we obviously bring a lot of technologies to integrate new sources of generation, the clean technologies onto the grid. And as part of that initiative, we, will, we felt that if we can deploy these solutions that we take to the market on our own, in our own facilities, that's certainly uh, something that we can learn from and we can also use it for ourselves. Secondly, if you look at um, a large employee base that we have, um, we do have need for electricity. We do have need for uh, uh, for significant amount of compute power. And, and we believe that 
to for us to move towards a lower carbon footprint and to become an example and role model for other organizations we need to invest in in going the renewable route so today if you look at it 50% of our energy consumption in in the campuses comes from renewable sources and um, that was one of the reasons we set up our first solar plant in hyderabad and now uh, we have one uh, near bangalore and we will continue to invest in setting that standard and and making sure that we deploy the technologies that we go and sell to our clients within our own facilities and that was the reason we thought we should we should move ahead and do this well and it's interesting because the um you know certainly i i spend more time looking at uh, china and its low carbon transformation than i have at india um simply because mm-hmm. they're so they've been doing so much but i also understand that india itself has been doing a substantial amount of work in terms of moving forward with renewables as well are you able to speak more of the about india and the transformation of the grid there so if you look at um the growing economy like india where more and more people are having access uh to to different devices and their their per consum- the consumption patterns are obviously going up the load is going up on the grid and at the same time um there is um there is a shift in the load curve in terms of remote places demanding electricity and the government not being able to put the wires and transformers to the remotest of places and that gave them an opportunity for them to leapfrog and start from renewables right so to set up a uh, rooftop solar uh, you don't need too much of infrastructure uh, by the government right people were able to uh, put rooftop solars and then consume the consume the demand locally uh, battery and uh, and and charging of batteries at home also started uh, picking up because again they did not want to depend too much on the grid and and this has kind of revolutionized the way they are looking at um, uh, the generation side of the house on the consumption side obviously there is increasing demand the more and more people and more and more villages are are getting electric uh, electricity and and that has caused the sudden surge in in looking for newer ways to generate um, uh, power and um, interestingly uh, mike um, solar and and wind seem to be growing at a very rapid pace in the in the indian market and and there are opportunities for global players as well to to go in and set up their uh, their facilities and help the the overall economy as well as the, the society uh, to get access to uh, to dependable and reliable power obviously with a high degree of safety yeah and the um you know the the status of the uh Indian subcontinent electrical transmission grid is one of the bigger inhibitors. Um China has done amazing work there. They've got a lot of yeah. HVDC yeah. and they've done a fairly good job. Europe uh, has got an amazingly robust grid. North America's grid is not nearly as robust as Europe's, but it still penetrates everywhere. And that's one of the challenges that you face in terms of implementing utility scale wind and solar. is being able to spread it across large geographic regions in terms of transmission are, are there major transmission projects that you know um is hvdc large in uh, the indian subcontinent there are um, quite quite a few um uh, initiatives have been launched by the by the current government to ensure that um, large scale generation plants are set up and then there is a transmission to different parts of the country as i said earlier um, some some parts are very remote and and very difficult for them to set up the infrastructure that is required and that's where the renewable uh, revolution is happening but if you look at the overall market today 
um, in in the energy sector. In in our view, we feel that the uh, there is a, there is a revolution, there is a change, there is a transformation happening, and it's based on five Ds. There is democratization of energy, there is a decarbonization of energy through the renewable sources, and there is deregulation happening in most part of the world. Uh, there is decentralization. So instead of having one large monolithic central generation to you know, smaller generation uh, sources in different parts of, uh, of the network. And then the final D is the digitization. So because of the digital technology, the cloud, IoT, ability to ability to analyze huge amount of data in a short time frame, the situational awareness on on a network uh, on a grid is much better today. So these five Ds are kind of shaping the global energy um, uh, uh, network, and India is is very heavy on um, the digitization part of it, right? Because of the sudden rise in the number of cell phone users, for example, access to information has become very easy. And, and therefore, um, they are able to create this this economy where um, their local support and local uh, setup of the infrastructure, being able to drive the, the renewable energy sources locally has, has kind of caught up well there. Um, if you look at the North American market, like you were saying earlier, yes, the transmission uh, investments have kind of lagged behind after you know several years of uh, 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 the aging of the of the infrastructure but then there is a there is a change in terms of people getting involved in uh, understanding what is the source of energy that they are consuming right so there's almost democratization of that uh, everybody wants to to be green everybody wants to access the green energy and the new generation con- con- consumers uh, they want to be part of the decision making. They want to be part of. They want to understand the the the, the source that uh, that is feeding the energy that they are consuming, and that has created this awareness where, on the on the demand side, there is tremendous amount of efficiency being pumped in the energy efficiency initiatives. Um, on the on the demand side, there is a uh, demand for electric vehicles, for example. Uh, battery storage uh, uh, at home, for example. So those are those are the changes that are happening on the demand side. On the supply side, obviously in states like like California, uh, we are seeing uh, rooftop solar being very popular. Right, people want to be part of that, and people want to pump their generation back to the grid so that they have a lower carbon footprint overall. And I, this this changes on both the demand and the supply side is is kind of transforming the energy industry today. Yeah, it's interesting to compare and contrast the drivers for rooftop solar in India versus the United States. In the United States, there's frequently a a very individualist desire to not to be isolated from the utilities and to go their own way. And typically very, you know, large houses for the number of people in a particular space. In India, though, um, memory serves um, the zoning requirements included um, having inverters in buildings at construction mm-hmm. because of the um, instability of the grid at that time. Is that still a requirement? Is, the, is grid stability increasing in India? It has improved significantly. If you look at the reliability of the grid, uh, it has improved significantly now. Many states have surplus energy that they produce. 
but um, but culturally this this backup plan of um, housing complexes and apartment complexes having a, a storage facility campuses having the storage facility just in case something goes wrong with the power is still there but it is not as uh, prevalent as it used to be earlier Mm, yeah, because it's, it's, it's just a very different approach to why top yes. solar approached. And so, you know, similar to the question of microgrids, you know, microgrids um, are very useful in uh, the emerging continents um, where we're still connecting people to the grid. You know, remote villages, as you alluded to, that, can't, that aren't connected by substantive wires um, can build a microgrid very effectively. Um, yeah, but it's not necessary as necessary. Are you seeing a significant amount in from your practice of microgrids in North America? We are. We see tremendous traction in the in our solutions related to microgrid, uh, both in North America as well as in Europe. Uh, this whole distributed energy resources and uh, and what we call as the emergence of the prosumers. These are producers and consumers, right? The same person can be can play both the roles. I can put a rooftop solar on my on, uh, on my house, and I can pump it back to the grid, and then consume at the same time and charge my car. And now, these these um, these changes have driven microgrids to be a lot more effective. And because of technology being available today, where you can do real-time analysis of what the load is likely to be, where where the generation sources are going to be, if the sun is going to shine tomorrow, if not, there's a lot of predictive analytics that you can deploy and and make the microgrids more and more efficient. Um, If you look at the traditional sources of energy, it was very difficult for uh, an end consumer to have a view on on what the situation would be tomorrow on the grid. But today, because of these technologies, you could easily see uh, a lot more uh, of how the grid is going to behave and, and where the sources are, how the consumption pattern would be, and so on and so forth. Right? So the microgrid is getting a lot of boost from these changes that are happening on the digital side of the world. Yeah, I, I suspect that the um, there's a difference between connected microgrids versus disconnected microgrids. Uh, I sus- um, is that a, You're seeing a lot more connected microgrids, my assumption, in Europe and North America. That is right. We're seeing a lot more connected microgrids where you pump it back and then then you buy it buy it from the grid. Yeah, it's um. Now, you also before the um, COP conference, Infosys also ended up on the CDP A list for a couple of years and then dropped to A minus in 2019. So, you know, for for the listeners, um, CDP was uh, used to be the carbon data project or something like that before renaming themselves a few years ago. And they're the primary organization for tracking actual carbon. And so Infosys, you know, tagging up in 2017 and 2018 on the A-list was quite good. We, we published on the CDP A-list cities um, late last year, for example. Um, so what happened in 2019 that, you know, from your perspective, dropped you down to an A-? minus? Still a very, very good result. result. Um, I'm not aware of the the reason for the drop. We were surprised, and we continue to work as effectively as ever on ensuring that we are uh, in the top quart- quartile of all of these ratings. But specific reasons as to how the rating drop is something that I I, I really don't know. Uh, as you know, like we have a total uh, campus of over 19 million square feet, right, all across the world. And each of our buildings are the highest rated, uh, what is called as LEED Platinum Ratings. 
and uh, and we continue to look for as we expand on our infrastructure we continue to look for these certifications as soon as we can right? as soon as we we get there um, there could have been some situation because of which the rating got impacted but i'm not i'm not privy to that information yeah, it's interesting I mean, this leads me to an, a question because you know you've got this uh, global senior vice presidential role which is a, a very senior role in an organizations like yours and the one that i used to be part of um infosys has made it a strategic goal to get um to do the lead process to become carbon neutral uh, infosys has you know obviously worked to get um the you know, climate neutral now category award from the UN and the CDP list. Um, this suggests yes. that for Infosys, at a higher level, this is a very important area strategically. Um, and I compare and contrast that to some other organizations, you know, the ones that I've worked with and some of the ones I've named in, um, in this conversation, where it's challenged. Um, so, for example, in many organizations, the energy and utilities sector is focused on oil and gas, um, and it's focused on the back end of IT shops for billing, or for of utilities for billing, but does but has very little coordinated, effective global focus on the low carbon transformation. So, why is Infosys so much more focused on this than some of your competitors? And I'm encouraging this. We believe that, sure, sure, sure. Thank you. Thank you. Sir. We believe that um, as, as businesses, responsible business, you need to set the trend. You need to be committed to the local community. You need to be committed to the climate. You need to be committed to the, to the planet in general, right? Because we all have shared resources here. And as an organization, that's of extreme importance to us. And it's the highest priority item for us. And we really want to set the standards. We really want to lead the way. And it is also about earning the respect and trust of our clients. If we are committed to a cause like this, where we are setting standards, we are pushing every single boundary to get there, our clients do believe that you know, this is a respected company that, that not only comes and gives us ideas and, and consults us on our journey to be sustainable companies, sustainable businesses, they themselves practice it. And, and when we practice it, we learn from this process. So to give you an example, we talked about reducing the per capita uh, electricity consumption of our employees, but you would also be um, interest, interested to know that our recycle programs, right? Um, we recycle 100% of our wastewater in every single campus, for example. We capture the rainwater effectively. We have uh, 350 injection wells for, um, for our water facilities. Um, we put the smart water meters, the smart meters for all the water consumption across our, our campuses, um, things like that. So every single footprint on every single uh, consumption that we have, be it electricity or water or any other resource, we track it and we try and improve on, on each of those parameters because, as I said, we really want to be a sustainable long-term business that is doing the right thing for, for the climate and is doing the right thing for the for the planet and we also want to set those standards so that our clients believe we we practice what we preach we we, we do the right thing uh, and then we go and give them the examples of how to do it yeah i compare and contrast to uh tata uh, not tcs but the larger holding company which was founded as i understand it on a strong 
a values-based approach and a strong approach of give back to the community at large. Um, would you con compare and contrast Infosys's uh, thought process around those types of things? It seems you're more like a Tata than one of the North American firms, for example. Right. Um, that would that would be one question, Mike. I wish I could uh, I could answer. I really don't know what the practices that Tata um, have deployed. But as I said, as Infosys. We continue to put this as a number one priority and, and the entire leadership team uh, is committed to making sure that we, we do not leave any opportunity uh, for us to set the standards and become, become the best and most respected company when it comes to practicing some of these um, sustainable business models and, and ensuring that we work uh, within, the, within, within the goals that we have set for ourselves. And then every year we review those goals and make sure that we are trying to do something better, right? The continuous improvement culture on, on, on each of these parameters is something that we are very proud of. Another difference then, I'm just testing some of the you know, theories. One of the challenges with the transformation of energy, um, as you pointed out, is the democratization of generation. It used to be there right. was a fairly small number of very large firms that dealt with that. Um, utilities built and operated their own stuff, and then there were some uh, other major generators. But now, you know, let's just take uh, the Canadian example. Uh, Suncor Energy has a wind farm. Um, Enbridge, the pipeline company, has solar farms and wind farms. Um, but they, you know, services, they don't consider those part of their business. They're more greenwashing their fingers and toes on their revenue lines. Um, we see a significant amount of our clients, um, of, of clients who are building commercial rooftop solar, but that's not the business that the services organizations necessarily engage in. Now, my observation in the firm I was with is that our uh, sectors, our approach to sales and our division of corporations led to a systemic challenge in terms of aligning with that democratization. Uh, how has Infosys overcome that? Um, on, on, on our internal on our internal consumption side, obviously um, the charter and the goals are set, um, and, and, and we commit ourselves to ensuring that we are taking every single step to support those uh, actions. And every every goal that we set on, in terms of being a, a carbon neutral company, being decarbonizing our, uh, our generation uh, side is followed by a very detailed planning exercise. And a detailed plan is signed off by the entire leadership. And, and then we start tracking it and we start measuring it and, and doing what is scenarios on. As we expand and grow as a business, how are we doing with respect to our commitment? Right? That's, that's been um, our motto and that's the way we have approached uh, uh, this. Now, if you look at the larger uh, uh, set of industries like oil and gas or fossil fuel industry or uh, some of the other industries, there has been a realization now that um, on the supply side, obviously there is a constrained supply and fossil fuel is going to run out sometime. And on the on the demand side, more and more people want to be uh, known as uh, consum con uh, consumers of green energy and consumers of a green footprint. And, and that is driving this whole discussion around decarbonization. Um, last two to three months, I'm sure you've tracked this. Um, many of the super majors, oil super majors, have committed to becoming carbon neutral by X number of years. Some, some are saying 2050, some are sure. And more aggressive goal. 
to be to be sure, I, I don't believe a word of it. Um, but it's nice that they're at least making paying lip service to it. Um, <laughs> I'm allowed to say that you don't have to agree with me. You you have a different position you're in. <laughs> but but where I was going with that example, Mike, is it is there. It's everybody wants to get there. Everybody wants to be. Um, to be investing in the technologies, building the plants, and ensuring that there is a very strong cultural drive uh, towards um, becoming carbon neutral and, and supporting the decarbonization of the, uh, the global energy economy. And, uh, and, and, and this requires a lot of cultural change. This requires a change management, investment in change management, setting the standards and leading it from the front, right? And that is one of the reasons we have been successful in this because we not only go and talk to our clients about decarbonization and, and democratization of energy, we also do it ourselves because we are we are a large organization, 230,000 people globally, and there is an opportunity for us to set these standards and lead the way, and, and that's what we do. Well, but this is what I'm getting back to. It's the go-to-market division of different corporations into different sectors, and that leads to you know, right. traditional sales approaches. Because of the democratization, the decarbonization is spread across multiple sectors. How does Infosys right. uh, align? I mean, I assume you have a PL target that is associated to this, um, but how do you, how does, how does Infosys overcome that legacy sector perspective, which hinders that approach? So um, as, 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 as a responsible global you know, systems integrator, we realize the value of having an ecosystem. Like we work with the likes of uh, Amazon who are fully committed to these kind of causes. And we create this, um, these relationships across the supply chain to kind of create that force multiplier. And once you have different partners come together and you, you start changing the supply chain itself to our clients, it has a much bigger um, uh, effect. And, and that's what we, we are doing. And that's what we're driving our go-to-market strategies as well. Like, uh, if you look at it as an organ organization, as a live enterprise, it's like a living organism. And, and, and our view is that every living organism senses things, it learns from those things, and then it, it, um, it evolves through that experience. And when we go to our client and we show that we have come together with joint forces with, uh, with three other partners who are equally committed to a cause like this, then that becomes our go-to-market approach. And, and that those clients also join into into the into the discussion, right? And and it has a it has a much broader impact on the overall ecosystem than if we were to do it on only inside our organization in silos. And and we believe that the most leading uh, companies today in the world are doing the same thing. Right? They're creating this ecosystem of suppliers and and clients and driving it together. Because then then the force and the momentum that you create for something like this is is tremendous. And well, congratulations to Infosys for overcoming that that institutional hurdle. I was never able to manage to break that bear, that challenge in the, the firm I was with, which is part of the reason I departed that firm. Um, but the uh, the um, but when you originally reached out, you know, we're in an interesting time right now um, for utilities for transmission, not only because of the uh, change in generation profiles, change in demand profiles. But there are now 
um, you know, we're in a period of lockdown with COVID-19, which has substantially reduced, you know, your carbon footprint globally with Infosys near 230,000 employees. But it's also in a very high profile way, PG&E and California had to shut down transmission because of wildfires. Um, so what are, you know, um, one of the things I'm doing right now for context, I'm working with Natural Resources of Canada to define um, leading practices globally for retreat of infrastructure and communities in the face of increased climate change. And wildfires is one of those mm. things. So it was part of the reason I was interested to speak with you. So, you know, you've got a, a particular perspective right now. And, you know, um, when, when your people reached out to me, it was about wildfires. So why don't you start, introduce that subject and why Infosys is interested in that? Sure, sure. So um, if you look at uh, our utilities practice, we work with some of the leading utilities across the globe, right? In, in North America, Europe, Australia, and so on. And wildfire seems to be an area of, uh, of focus for most of our clients. And if you look at what happened in California uh, over time or what's happening in, in Australia, um, the service territory and the distribution and transmission lines are spread across a very large uh, uh, area. And the vegetation across those thousands of miles, they require constant monitoring, pruning, maintenance. Uh, you have to predict uh, in, in some ways to which ones are more likely to uh, get impacted by fire and so on. So there is, we believe that there is a tremendous opportunity for a, a SI like us to partner with our clients and help them get over this this wildfire challenges and the subsequent damage to the to the public and the community and the society in general. And and that is why we felt that there are technologies available today in the market and there are solutions that that, that can be built using these technologies to help with the whole vegetation management area. And we at Infosys started working on early on on how do you number one use visual analytics from pictures uh, to predict which transmission lines are closer to the vegetation and where you should be sending your your field crew to go and uh, and, and prune the the vegetation. At the same time, you also uh, look at how do you deploy some of the IoT devices and other technologies that are available and do predictive analytics right on before you reach a point where you have to go and do you know lack of a better word firefighting uh, no pun intended uh, you essentially predict it right? you you create these models which can give you early insights into uh, your action and, and and then you deploy your and prioritize and deploy your crew to go and do some work in that in that area and 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 that kind of focus will help our clients uh, be a little more resilient uh, and they will be probably a lot more proactive than reactive in handling these kind of uh, crisis situations. So efforts are on. We're working with several clients. We're bringing all these technologies, solutions, thought leadership, and partnerships with uh, with large cloud providers, so that you can process a large amount of data in a very short time frame, uh, and and host it on the cloud and do your do your uh, uh, compute on, on on the cloud. So uh, it's been very interesting and exciting journey for us, but we continue to support our clients in this effort. And uh, we believe that there will be a significant amount of uh, impact that we can make in this area. 
Well, yeah, I mean, if we just think about North America and Europe as, as examples, I'm familiar with the changes in precipitation patterns in those. I've read some uh, studies on those yeah. recently and, and lived through them. Um, but we see um, in North America, we see a drier west coast and a wetter east coast. So that's yeah. leading to more wildfires on the west coast of uh of North America, and I've suffered through. You know, in, even in Vancouver, we had a we had a pall of wildfire smoke over Vancouver for a while. In Europe, it's reverse. The northwest is wetter, the southeast is drier. But I haven't heard about an increase in wildfire activity in Europe, and I, I assume that's partly because there's a lot fewer unmanaged forests there. Um, has there been an uptick in wildfires in Europe? No, no, we have not seen that. Like you said, it's, it's very regional and. Um, and in, in European utilities continue to obviously experiment with all these technologies to ensure they are proactive, but we haven't seen too many of those in, in Europe. Yeah, and in here it's it's very important because we have such a mate well, A, there's no offshore wind in North America to speak of yet. There's one thirty megawatt wind farm on the east coast. Um so we don't have the offshore wind resource. What we do have is uh, especially in the United States, the prairies wind resource that mostly has to get to the coasts and the west yeah. coast it goes right through the wildfire zones um, and similarly the south um, the southern utility scale solar farms need to transmit out to the coasts yeah. as well sure. so there's a significant there's significant risk to grid stability because of wildfires yeah, and anytime there is extra rain, uh, any year there is extra rain, then the brush, uh, the brush fires tend to be a lot more in the west coast, and that kind of puts a significant challenge. Right, in the, when the wind is blowing and you have brush fires catching up, then it spreads very fast. Uh, it goes out of control pretty quick. Yeah, and I guess this gets to three or four levels of implications for utilities and their clients. First of all, there's client. Um, supply disruptions uh, and so there's yeah. a potential need for um, more storage for longer term storage pumped hydro and the like in california to as part of the strategy to accommodate this but secondarily you know there's a cost of infrastructure if you know the transmission line burns down it's expensive to fix but, but the third one which you know i hadn't thought of at all before was worker safety linesmen spend a lot of time dealing with those lines and predicting when it's safe for them to be in the area related to wildfire. It's very interesting. So. Worker safety, as well as the safety of the community. Right? If you look at some of the incidents that happened in, in California, uh, it did impact the local community and, and people living in that area. So uh, it's safety of both the crew and as well as the public. Yeah. Um, so what specific technologies, I, mean, I, I assume that you know, you're uh, in part going from recent aerial photography, um, are you deploying drone-based inspection, um, are you using machine learning to uh, do assessments of degree of, of stuff, are you using satellite imagery for infrared for water, um, water resources, you know, what's the mix? Absolutely, all of them. Uh, you do uh, imagery and then you use um, your visual analytics to identify the kind of foliage it is. And based on that, you can actually predict how close it is going to be uh, to the transmission line and, and therefore what the risk level is, right? So then you 
you kind of come up with this red, yellow, and, and green zones, red being the closest to the transmission line, and, and therefore an immediate pruning is required, and vegetation management has to prioritize that as the number one priority. And then you have the yellow, which was likely to be there in, in the red zone in a month or so, and then you have the green ones, which are kind of okay. Right, and and as you deploy this, uh, your crew to go and um, and do the vegetation management in these areas, you refresh your models and you you get to know a lot more about this this area because once they visit and they have a visual um, inspection of the area, the new information is fed into this model, and and that way you are a lot more proactive and you are a lot more um, uh, resilient to 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 fires. Secondly. Uh, you also look at the safety of public, right? Public safety in terms of when you do a visual analytics, you, are, you know the, uh, where the population is closer to, to the fire if there was one, and how do you ensure that you are proactively helping them uh, uh, stay safe. So there's a lot of technologies that have to come together to ensure that um, you, are, uh, uh, you, are, you are doing the right thing before uh, any crisis. At the same time, you're also saving lives uh, in in the area in your service territory. Yeah, it's a. It, and, a, it's a like you said, all of the like you said, all of the technologies like visual analytics, IoT de uh, deployment, um, flying drones, uh, using cloud to to capture a lot more information and analyze them on a real time basis, giving the situational situational awareness tools to the crew. So that they are able to feed the right information and, and get it answered, and and ARVR. Right? If you are able to create a, a wildfire scenario and you train your crew using um, AR and VR, uh, they are a lot more trained to handle the situation than throwing a crew in, in into a fire zone for the first time. So there is a lot of training uh, that can be done using the, the latest technologies. Yeah, one, so one of the things which, um, I did over in the past year is I, um, you know, surveyed the globe for initiatives around machine learning and clean technology. And in that regard, what I did was I, um, uh, one of the studies that, that specifically I'm thinking of, it attempted to find, it explored different ways of determining the end size of wildfires in Australia using mm -hmm. a variety of mm -hmm. analytical techniques. And what they found was mm -hmm. in the end, after applying machine learning and a bunch of other stuff, was that it was actually a simple statistical thing based upon, I think, six factors of the initial size that enabled them to predict quite well. Um, so it turned out an unsophisticated model was more predictive than a sophisticated model. You know, it's just one of the amusing challenges as, as our ability to gain more information and assess more factors increases. It doesn't necessarily mean the quality of the results increases. But, um, are you familiar with that yeah. study out of Australia? Yes, yes, I've heard of it. In fact, um, we have done a pilot in our engineering lab at some point. I would love to give a, give a demo to you. Where, uh, again, using visual analytics and machine learning um, and using some of the models that you talked about, we could predict the spread. And, 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 and if you get real-time information of the wind and the kind of foliage, then um, we have a model that could show you this is the this is the path of propagation, right? And hence, mm -hmm. you need to control it here before it reaches this point. Uh, we have done a pilot. We we uh, we are talking to utilities and, and other clients to see if um, something there's something like that can be deployed. But it's very interesting. It is uh, it is machine learning and and, and artificial intelligence has reached a point where you could easily deploy these things uh, and in a very quick fashion. 
Well, that, that's certainly my observation over the past couple of years. I'm engaged with a you know a, a startup which is doing some you know exploiting machine learning, and I've talked to a lot of machine learning people around the world. Right. The, um, the way I would describe it is that it's reached um, visual recognition and speech recognition have reached points where they're highly exploitable technologies. And back to that word we've used a couple of times, they're democratized. It's possible for people to pick them up easily with open AI courses. Um, I'm sure there's an amazing community in India, for example, of people who are taking the advanced machine learning efforts from Kaggle and OpenAI and just doing amazing things with them. I'm sure you guys are, are focused on some of that. Absolutely, we are. Um, we we believe that um, the way to start any machine learning or AI project is use cases, right? Uh, real impact to our clients' business. We identify a use case, and there are many machine learning options, uh, uh, artificial intelligence options that you could deploy. To give you an example on the previous scenario, where a crew is out there trying to do vegetation management or replace a pole or change the oil in a transformer, um, we have deployed technologies using machine learning where the crew can ask uh, his or her, her cell phone any question regarding the asset that uh, that he or she is going to maintain, and it will give a very quick uh, response based on the database of all kinds of answers that we have stored in the in the back end and so they don't have to try it they don't have to call somebody they don't have to go and look up the uh, work order everything is available uh, on their earphone right? and they can listen to instructions they can see a video of how the work was done previously and so on and this is all powered by machine learning so, and every, every time they do something that the, the the machine learns more and, and hence it becomes a lot more knowledgeable than the last visit right and uh, and and these are these are practical examples, use cases, and uh, and we believe that that idea will continue to grow. It will change lives. It will improve safety. It will improve uh, reliability of the grid, um, and uh, and these technologies are pervasive now. Uh, what's interesting to me about part of it is from a professional services organization, you know, you have to train a whole bunch of people in a specific technology, but machine learning moves so fast. I mean, um, one of the other firms I deal with the strategy director for in Toronto, um, you know, their machine learning focused stuff out of Australia has got a formal platform that the organization uses. But even the people who work with that practice say, don't use it. It's been superseded. Use the open source stuff instead. Uh, how do you keep, um, how does Infosys keep its staff up to date on the rapid transformation of technologies there? Yeah. So, Mike, um, um, one of the things we take pride in is we are probably the best training company out there in the world. Right. We have the largest corporate campus. Um, it's a 250-acre corporate campus where we could train uh, as many as you know, 15,000 people on any given day. Right? And, and, and that is backed by a lot more cultural investments into building this, uh, these training modules across all technologies. Right? It takes us less than a week to come up with a new curriculum, depending on whichever technology a client needs. And, and that we have taken to a very different level now. We've, we've established these innovation hubs in different parts of the world. Uh, in North America, we've set up six of them where we are taking this training and now we have built our own um, online platform for training called uh, Lex uh, or Wingspan. 
And all of these courses are available on that. Uh, every single employee is uh, encouraged to participate. We also track their progress. And it almost becomes like a cultural uh, change that uh, that you have to deploy every single time there is a change in technology or change in direction. You, great, you used a great example, machine learning. It's constantly evolving. There are open source modules out there. There are crowdsourcing um, projects that are happening out there. And we want to we want our employees to take advantage of all of that. So it is uh, the content is is presented on this platform. And fortunately for us, we are not married to one technology or the other. Like we are a technology agnostic company, <laughs> and uh, we, we unlike train, we unlike my previous our, employer. <laughs> <laughs> I know, <laughs> but uh, we, we train a large number of people on any given technology at any point of time, and these investments on innovation hubs across the world uh, have really paid off well for us. Right? We have a setup where employees can go and learn any digital technology they want to learn about. Uh, we've also set up design studios because we believe that um, uh, you need to envision the future of using machine learning and, and digital technologies. And in order to do that, you need to think like a designer, right? So engineers solve the problem, designers find the problem. And, and we need to bring a lot more problem finding skills into our employees. And that is why the design studios, one, one in Rhode Island, the other one in Germany, um, are, uh, are also helping us retrain our employees, help them reorient, re-pivot on where the world is going both in terms of um, uh, the technology side as well as the business changes that are happening. It's challenging. The uh, pace of change is accelerating. Um, Kurzweil's observations about that rate of change are bearing fruit in terms of how fast things are changing. Humans kind of have two-year chunks that we perceive change in. So it's only when you step back and observe the rapidity of the change 20 years to go to 10 years ago and then 10 years ago to now that you realize how fast things are changing for everybody. And COVID-19 is bringing that home to us. Yeah. I I read a fascinating quote, Mike. Uh, It said uh, the rate of change is the fastest it has ever been and the slowest it will ever be. Yes. Um, and not, a lot of people don't actually seem to get that. Now, this actually leads me into um, a subject near and, near and dear to my heart, which is the, the pain of dealing with regulatory transformation in the utility industry, mm-hmm. um, given the rapidity of change of other things. I, I certainly see, you know, you, you, we talked briefly, uh, touched briefly upon the liberalization um, of markets, um, but still, most there's a, a tremendous number of regulated monopolies. Yeah. Um, there's a tremendous yeah. amount of like the, there's the study out of MIT for, by Jenkins um, at all from 2018, where he said, you know, right now the U.S. Pr- pressurized water reactor nuclear fleet could be operated with the limited load falling that it's capable of on the day ahead markets and reduce mm. fossil fuel consumption and increase and decrease feathering of renewables. Um, and so the net benefits would be increased um, uh, increased profits and revenue for the uh, nuclear fleet to persist them to the retirement. And he and I agreed that uh, when I spoke to him that it wasn't viable to um, enough to make it worth building new nuclear, but it would at least make them more economically viable. But it also reduced CO2 emissions 
Um, but the mm -hmm. regulatory requirements required them to be baseline, that archaic concept of a baseline mode. Um, you know, what's your most interesting example of a mismatch between uh, utility regulations and the need for transformation? The regulators or regulations are falling behind the speed of change that technology is bringing. Right? It is across industries, not just in the, in the energy sector. Uh, in the utilities business in particular, like we talked about earlier, this whole drive towards decarbonization and the consumers becoming prosumers and participating in, in the full network um, does not support a regulated environment, right? It is, if it were, if, if the customer is involved in making a choice and they're involved in making a, a contribution to becoming uh, a decarbonized economy, then they should be given the choice to select their providers, to the choice to select the type of energy they want to consume and so on and so forth. And that change will happen, but it's, it's happening uh, in, a, in a slow manner. And if you look at an omni-channel experience that, uh, that a consumer wants today, right? Um, I, as a consumer of electricity, gas, and water, I, I don't like to make a phone call to a call center. So I go to the website or I launch their app. Uh, I want a seamless experience across all of this. And at the same time, I also want to choose uh, a provider. I also want to make sure that I, I have my standards. I set certain goals for the provider and I participate in that entire uh, value chain. Uh, today, the regulations are not there. Right? Um, I, for example, uh, utility cannot recommend the the type of refrigerator I should be buying, or they cannot make any money from uh, giving me a more energy efficient uh, device because regulations don't allow that. And and things like that should, should change, uh, where utility can play a lot more um, role in making some of these consumption decisions than just provide electricity and build me. And, and I, can, I can give many other examples, but these are some of the examples which are, will drive the change. And I, I see the change happening but like any other industry where uh, this, this, this machine learning and digital technologies are kind of pushing the change first and then the regulations are catching up, whether it is in the world of Airbnb or Uber or, or Lyft, you see that the, somebody has come up with a solution uh, to a problem that, that we all lived with, but then the regulations are trying to catch up to that. Yeah. Um, and we will we'll see the same thing happen in the utility and energy sector as well. Yeah, one of the examples that comes to mind is blockchain and peer-to-peer -peer microgrid yes. energy sharing, um, not permissible under uh -huh. regulatory structures. Um, yes. So, um, Ashish? And the famous question, famous question to Mark Zuckerberg, how do you make money? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. So, Dash, it's so, been a real pleasure talking to you. I'm so glad we got the time to spend this hour together. Um, you know, you've got an audience, a global audience, 50% in the United States, um, technically literate, um, climate literate. You know, what, what, what would you like to say, if you had anything to say to, you know, that audience? Um, global change, uh, the climate change globally is, is something that needs everybody, all of us. To be committed to, right? It is not. Uh, it is not the responsibility only for uh, large organizations, but it is a responsibility for each one of us to do our bit uh, to understand, uh, participate in in initiatives, and also support uh, 
the the behaviors and the cultural changes that are required on a daily basis as a consumer as a producer as a uh, as a as a global citizen so my request to the audience would be to be very active uh, participants in that and make the conscious decisions to help uh, with the climate change initiatives that are required for the planet Thank you very much. Uh, we've been speaking to Ashish Das, uh, Senior Vice President and Global Head of Services for the Energy Utility Sector for Infosys, a global services firm. Uh, Dash, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund clean tech talk.